slide out to transformation station in the back. Man, if that song doesn't get your, get your affections just stirring, man, it's good. Jesus, thank you. Well, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22. And if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one that we provided, one under the seat there. It's page 882 in the Bibles that we provide, 882. We're going to be in Luke 22 and 23. Well, this past week, I had the, uh, the privilege of spending some time um, with my family in South Carolina at the beach. Um, I got a little bit of sun, maybe. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't get a ton of sun. Um, but I also got to hang out with some of these, um, these Summerlink interns as they were preparing to come up here. And, uh, and about halfway through the week... I got a text from one of my buddies in Florida, and it basically said this, John, I'm sorry, it's been a rough week in Boston. Now, was that an understatement, right? I mean, on Monday, the Stanley Cup, we lose Paul Pierce, KG, um, and then you've got the, old, the whole Aaron Hernandez trial. Uh, I replied, so at least the Red Sox are winning. Um, you know, there's not, it's not all bad. Um, but this whole Aaron Hernandez trial has been the news over this past week. And today we're going to look at the trial and the crucifixion of Christ. Now I guarantee you, my, my point here is not to cast judgment on, on guilty or not guilty, but I guarantee you this, he will receive a fair trial. Our, our law demands it. And yet, when we come to the cross today, we are going to see one of the greatest injustices ever done. And yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, before we jump into Luke 22 here, I, I want to read just one verse or a few verses out of 1 Corinthians. And I want you to track with me because what we're looking at today has immense significance for your life. Paul, reflecting on this, says this in 1 Corinthians. Just listen. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. Every single one of you today will be confronted with the cross. And so I already want to ask you this question. As you look at the cross, is it folly? Or do you see power? Now I'm going to pray for us again because I want us, I want us to search our hearts and, and even as we look to the cross and as we are tempted to cast stones and throw rocks at the injustice of the cross, the reality is, is that the cross is going to confront each one of us to look inwardly and ask a, a number of key questions. So let me pray for us. And I want to, I want to ask you that, that you would pray, even today. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're here and, and you're kind of exploring this whole Jesus thing. 
And maybe right now you'd say, it is folly to me. I want you to, will you pray, God, reveal the power of God to me today and to help me see that in the cross. Will you pray that? I'm going to lead us. Father, we come to the cross today in Luke and the climax of all of history, this apex. And God, there's huge significance for our lives. And God, we pray and I pray that you would open our eyes to see clearly the power of God displayed in the cross. God, I pray, as it says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom, that the cross would not be folly to us today, but it would be sweet, it would be glorious, it would be magnificent, it would be powerful. So God, I pray that you would open our eyes by your Spirit to see and to embrace the cross and the power of the cross for our life. I pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Let's go to Luke 22 and let's start reading. Luke 22, we're going to pick up today in verse 63. Last week, as a reminder, we saw Jesus tell Peter that he's going to deny him three times. Peter says, no, I'll, I'll go to jail and I'll die. And, and, and then Jesus goes into the garden and he prays, Lord, take this cup, the very one we just sang about. He drank the cup for me. But he says, not my will, your will be done. The Lord strengthens him immediately with angels. And then he is betrayed by Judas, not with a kiss of love, but with a kiss of death. And then he is arrested. And then we see Peter's denial three times. And that's where we pick up today in Luke 22, verse 63. This is what the scriptures say. It says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Jesus gets no respect. And it won't be the last time in this episode where we see that he gets no respect. But what's happening here, as we've seen all along, is that Jesus, though the events seem to be spiraling out of control, is in complete control. Go back to Luke 18 with me. Just flip a few pages back. Luke 18, verse 32. Do you remember us when we looked at this? Jesus says, I'll read 31 as well. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, as they did not grasp what was said. And so when we jump forward to Luke 22, when we read about him being mocked and beaten, we're reminded that Jesus had told them that this would happen. And in fact, we just read a second ago from Isaiah 53, that this was been told of old, that Jesus would be despised and he would be mocked. And these events are in complete control with the sovereign Lord. 
But we continue on. And this next section lays out his trial. And so as we look at the trial of Christ, um, they're, they're, Jesus is going to face six examinations between his evening arrest and his morning sentence. And if we were to combine all the Gospels, we find in John that, first of all, there's an inquiry before Annas, who was like high priest emeritus. Um, and then there was an evening meeting with Caiaphas, the high priest. And then there was a morning confirmation for the official Jewish body, the Sanhedrin, which is what we're going to see here in verse 66. So you, you go with the Sanhedrin, then you go to Pilate, who sends him back to Herod, who comes back to Pilate, and then he sentences the people. And so let's walk through this trial. And I want to pose a question for you, because this is what the text does to us. Who is Jesus? The text implicitly is putting this in front of every single one of you. You cannot stand here as a bystander just watching. You're confronted with this. Who is Jesus? So we see, first of all, in verse 66, these questions come to the forefront. It says, When day came, the assembly of the elders, the people, gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. First question, who is Jesus? He says here, he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. Jesus basically says, hey, my response is going to be useless. You, in essence, have already made up your mind. And so they continue in verse 68. He says, and I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from our own lips. Jesus says he is the Son of Man who will be seated at the Father's side. This reminds us of the great promises of the Old Testament. We go back to 2 Samuel 7. David is going to have an eternal kingdom and an everlasting reign who will sit on the throne and rule and, and Jesus is talking about sitting at the right hand of the Father. Ironically, though, it's Jesus before the council. And as they pronounce judgment on him, the irony is that ultimately he is the one who is going to sit and be judged. And we will all one day give account to Jesus. They basically charge him with blasphemy. Why? I mean, think about it. Jesus is claiming that he is going to sit at the right hand of the Father. I mean, to put any human in the presence of God is to diminish his stature. Unless, maybe this is actually alluding to who Jesus is. If in fact he can sit beside the Father, maybe he is more than a mere man. Maybe he is the Son of God. And so Jesus replies with a mild affirmation. He says, you say that I am. He's not denying it. And at the same time, he's not jumping at the bit. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's a mild affirmation here. And in essence, he, he goes to the cross by his own words. They say it. Hey, we need no further testimony for him. And so these words would bring death because they're not properly received. And so they've got the resolution. You've taken Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and they've now got the evidence in his own words that he will condemn himself. And so now they take him 
to Pilate. We continue on. Chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. You see, Pilate was the major Roman administrator over the area. If Jesus was going to be killed, it had to have Pilate's approval. So they come before Pilate. In verse 2 it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You see these questions? Are you the Christ? Are you the son of man? Are you the son of God? Now, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Let's just pause right here for a second. Look at the charges that they bring against Jesus. The first one. We found this man misleading our nation. In essence, Jesus is disturbing the peace as a religious agitator. The second one. He forbids us giving tribute to Caesar. Is that true? No, it's a blatant lie. I mean, what did we just see in a few, few chapters earlier? Tanner preached a sermon on this. He says, Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. So we see this trial here. They are bringing accusations against him that are blatantly false and not true. But think about it. If they want to get Pilate to kill Jesus, what do they want to paint Jesus as? As an enemy. I mean, think about it. If Jesus is saying, do not give tribute to Caesar, and Pilate's in charge, he's the Roman administrator, this is a direct assault against his leadership. It's threatening Pilate. And then he says, they say, he is claiming to be Christ, a king. He's claiming to be the anointed one. He, they're painting him as a revolutionary. And so how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds to Pilate and said, you have said so. But the irony is in verse 4. It says, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in him. Why? If Jesus is the king of the Jews and the Christ, why does Pilate say, I don't find any guilt? Pilate declares his innocence. In fact, this will not be the first time we see his innocence. I mean, let's just jump forward and then we'll come back. Look at verse 14. 23, 14. We'll go 13 and 14. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Hey, neither did Herod. Look at verse 20. Flip ahead. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving of death. And then jump forward to verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. You see, Luke wants to make it absolutely clear that everyone involved in asking who was Jesus said he was innocent. 
He was not guilty. But these proceedings are unjust. If we were to look further, we would see that even many of the Jewish laws for trials had been violated. The proceedings were supposed to take place in the temple, not the high priest's home. He was, supposed to, he was tried without a defense. The verdict came in the space of one day when two days were required. He was tried on a feast day. And then you've got contradictory testimony, which should have nullified the evidence. All throughout this, everyone can see this is a scam. And yet, what does Pilate do? Go back to 22, sorry, 23. 23 verse 4. It says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt on this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So verse 6, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So what does Pilate do? He passes the buck. He affirms innocence, and yet at the pressure of the, of the crowd, he basically is going to pass the buck and, and, and let Herod handle this, because ultimately it's a Jewish matter, right? He, Pilate sees no threat to Roman authority. In fact, what should have happened to Jesus? If he's innocent, what should have happened? He should have been released. And yet, the trying and the mocking continue. So we come to Herod, verse 7. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. This is interesting. Pilate says he was excited. He was glad to see Jesus. I mean, I'd heard all about this Jesus guy. He wants to see a sign that Jesus is going to do. And Jesus sits there with his mouth shut and says nothing. It actually reminds us of what we read in Isaiah. Like a sheep before it shears is silent. The point of this passage is to continue to show his innocence and yet explain how he was crucified. I mean, if all throughout the passage we see he's innocent, he's innocent, everybody's saying he's innocent, how then does he get crucified? In fact, both Rome and Jerusalem could have stopped the march of death, and yet they failed to do so. Why? Other forces are at work. As we know, Jesus will be killed unjustly, but in another sense, he is laying down his life. For the sheep. So what does, what does Herod do? In verse 10, it says, The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, mocking him as a king. They, he sent him back to Pilate. And it says, And Herod and Pilate became friends. Thanks, Luke, for letting us know that little piece of the puzzle. They became friends that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. I mean, what do we see here? We see there's ultimately more involved than just justice. We see there are politics 
and the sway of the masses. So what do you think Pilate's going to do? Let's keep reading. What does Pilate do? Look at verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod. Now, Herod did not tell us that, but Pilate's the one that lets us know. Hey, by the way, Herod didn't find any guilt either. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to him. I will therefore punish and release him. Again, Pilate is trying to appease the crowd. Hey, okay, I'll scold him a little bit, and then I'm going to release him. He, he wants and desires to do the right thing. And yet, what happens in verse 18? He says, but they all crowd out together. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. You may notice that we go from verse 16 to verse 18. You guys have a verse 17 there? You'll find a little footnote, probably in most of your Bibles, that say some manuscripts add verse 17. Now, he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. Now, most scholars would affirm that the manuscript evidence isn't there to include that, that this wasn't original with Luke. So that's why in my Bible I go straight from 16 to 18. But in Matthew chapter 27, verse 16, we have this, verse 15 and 16. Now the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So Matthew lets us know this, this was with the tradition at the Passover that the governor could release a prisoner, anyone they wanted. So now with that background, let's go back to Luke 22, Luke 23. It says, they're crying out, release to us Barabbas. You know what Barabbas means? Barabbas means the son of the father. You've got the son of God and Barabbas, the son of the father. And they released the wrong son. What do we know about Barabbas? It tells us here in verse 19. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And just look at this. You've got a murderer in what Daryl Bach describes here as as in some sense, almost like a modern-day insurrectionist and terrorist. And you've got Jesus, who everybody's affirmed he's innocent. And the crowd says, give us Barabbas. You know what we have a picture here of? Jesus' death is a picture of how he sets captives and prisoners free. Barabbas gets freed, and the innocent goes to the cross. In fact, isn't this a picture of every single one of us? So verse 20, what does Pilate do? It says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish 
and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. In the end, politics and public relations with the masses win over justice. He decided that one death was better than mass violence. And so we see in Matthew, it says, He washes His hands clean, and the people accept responsibility for His death. But do you know what they're asking for? Crucifixion? I have given you guys a quote here. Look at the screen. Cicero condemned crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting punishment, saying, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him, what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. We're, we're not talking here about a slap on the wrist. They are demanding that Jesus experience one of the harshest punishments that man could experience. In a crucifixion, they would have the main post already in the ground at the crucifixion site. They would strap the cross beam to his back and he would carry it. It, it could be, he could later be nailed or even they could use rope to, to tie him to the, the beam. And then he would, he would carry that to the site. They would fasten it to the upright pole or drop it into the slot. And then there would be a tablet describing why this person was being crucified. We know that Jesus had nails in his hands. He, he goes to Thomas, right? And he says, he shows him his hands. We see in Colossians, talks about him being pierced. But we're... Actually, there's, there's nothing that ever says his feet were pierced. In fact, his feet could have, could have just been tied. Um, that was crucifixion. And they're saying, crucify him. So let me just pause here for a second and ask you this. Who killed Jesus? We could answer this a number of different ways, right? In one sense, we could say, Pilate and the Romans killed Jesus, right? The Roman soldiers and Pilate. Pilate wanted to avoid sentencing Jesus, and at the same time, he wanted to avoid exonerating him. In the end, he made a cowardly decision and gave in to the pressure of the masses. Listen to what John Stott says, reflecting on this. He says, it's easy to condemn Pilate. Listen, it's easy to throw stones to condemn Pilate and overlook our own equally devious behavior. Anxious to avoid the pain of a wholehearted commitment to Christ, we too search for convenient subterfuges. We either leave the decision to somebody else or opt for a half-hearted compromise or seek to honor Jesus for the wrong reason or even make a public affirmation of loyalty while at the same time denying Him in our hearts. Are you doing to Jesus the same thing Pilate did? Are you sitting back and letting somebody else make the decision about who Jesus is? Are you following with kind of a half-hearted commitment to Jesus? Are you seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons, for political gain, to please the masses? 
Are you publicly affirming Jesus and yet at the same time in your heart denying Him? In one sense, Pilate and the Romans killed Jesus. In another sense, the Jewish people and their priests killed Jesus. Look at this from Acts. Later on, we know Acts is the second part of Luke. Luke writes, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man tested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pain, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held. It was envy that led them to hand Jesus over to Pilate to be destroyed. I mean, think about it. We've seen this leading up to his death. Why did Jesus threaten the Jewish leadership? What was it about Jesus? It was his authority. Jesus, by whose authority do you do these things? Remember that conversation? And Jesus goes and asks him about John the Baptist. They were threatened by his authority. If he truly is the king, what does that mean for their life? But you know what? That same evil passion and envy influences our own attitudes as well. We reject his authority. Stott writes, we resent his intrusions into our privacy, his demand for our homage, his expectation of our obedience. So we too perceive him as a threatening rival who disturbs our peace and upsets our, upsets our status quo, undermines our authority and diminishes our self-respect. We want to get rid of him as well. Do you stand just like the Jews in rejecting the authority of Christ? Let me ask you today. Is Jesus tempting to disrupt the authority of your life? You've got a plan. You've got dreams. You've got desires. And yet Jesus is coming face to face with that. Whose authority rules your life? Whose authority are you submitting to? Which, which all of this is leading us to this third one. Who killed Jesus? Their sin and ours. Look, we, we're not just bystanders looking at the cross. We are participants. Guilty. Plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, handing him over to be crucified. Stott says, we may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt is as futile as his. For their blood, there is blood on our hands. And I love this. Listen closely. He says, Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Look, we sing about the cross every Sunday. But if you have never owned your share, and the guilt of the cross, you have no possession of the grace that's offered. To come to Jesus is to acknowledge Jesus died for my sin. Have you said that? 
Do you believe that? Have you confessed that? You're a sinner. And that in one sense, you killed Jesus. We see the trial of Christ wrap up in Luke 23. Verse 24 says, So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So now as we conclude the sermon, we're going to go to the cross. The trial, the sentence has been set. Jesus is now heading to the cross. So verse 26. It says, As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. You can imagine, Jesus is continuing to be mocked. He's been beaten. He's weary. And you know what Simon is a picture of? Simon is a picture of humanity being drawn into Jesus' death. So Simon carries the cross, and we see this conversation start in verse 27. It says, There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, So Jesus is going to the cross. You've got these women. They're mourning. And Jesus said, Look, don't mourn for me. You're, you're, you're mourning for the wrong person. You need to be mourning for yourselves. He says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is the last pronouncement of judgment on Israel. And he's basically saying a time is coming, and it's going to be so bad that, ups, that, that creation, it's going to seem upside down. Who do we think is blessed? We think of the woman who has a child. That family is blessed. And yet he says, it is going to be so bad. That it would be better to have no family at all. It will be so great that people are going to say mountains come crash on me. They would desire to end their life. This is the judgment that's about to come on Israel because they reject Jesus. He's basically mentioning, in conclusion, a lesser to a greater argument. He says, if this is what happens to a living tree, he says there, they do these when the wood is green. A living, live tree, what will happen when it's dry? If this is what happens to a living tree, what might happen to a dead one? It's easier to burn dried wood than lush, moisture-filled wood. If God doesn't spare Jesus, how much more will Israel not be spared? And so this is his last pronouncement of judgment. And then he heads to the cross. Verse 32. We start to get some of the details of the crucifixion. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death. This fulfills his, his prediction of Isaiah 53, 12, that he would be crucified in between criminals. We saw that in twenty two thirty seven. 37. It says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, Golgotha, it was outside of the city, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
and they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus is humiliated. He is mocked. He's naked. All of the Gospels describe different pieces of this. We see Luke doesn't describe everything. We don't have the crown of thorns mentioned here. But this idea of humiliation is consistent. And we see this, and it says in verse 35, And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. They wanted to prolong his suffering, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. As we wrap up, I want to pose two questions. One is, what function does the death of Christ serve for the believer? And then a second question I want to ask is, why was Jesus killed? The first one I want to look at, we see a a glimpse of this in verse 34. When Jesus says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus on the cross, and and as we read through the rest of the scriptures, we see the New Testament authors writing to the churches, reflecting on the cross as an example for what it means to, if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to follow his example on the cross. So let me show you a few of these. We see this first one as an example of love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's fulfilling what he had told his disciples to do in Luke. Let me, let's look at these here. We've got a few verses here. He said earlier in Luke 6, But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And now he's on the cross getting mocked and beaten and killed. Father, forgive them. Do you have any enemies today? The cross serves as a picture. If you are going to follow Christ and submit to his authority, then you follow him in the way that he lives. And so he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The only way you can do this is by the cross that frees you to do this. Let me show you another one here. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The cross is a picture of sacrificial love. And so later on, Paul's going to say to husbands in Ephesians 5, he's going to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Hey, husbands, look at me. You want to live marriage in a way that makes not much of you, that makes much of God, come to the cross. And Jesus says, you love your wife the way I love the church. And I laid it down. I sacrificed. I put my desires aside, my interests aside, and I want to love my wife this way. I don't know of any wife who wouldn't be thrilled to follow after a man that loved her this way. He's a picture of sacrificial love. He's also a picture 
of long-suffering. Look at a few of these verses here on suffering. We find in 1 Peter, reflecting on the cross, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You look to Jesus and you endure suffering. What did he do? He kept his mouth shut and he entrusted himself to God. You can endure suffering. You can endure martyrdom knowing that ultimately God is the righteous judge. He sees all. Everyone one day will give an account to him. And are you, are you going through suffering right now? Are you tempted to just fight back with words of condemnation? Display the gospel. You know, because you know what the world, the world expects you to come back just like everybody else. If you get reviled, what do you do? You want up somebody and you revile them. You know what would just be a sweet picture and potentially... God glorifying, I mean, just God could use it in, in a salvific way to open somebody's eyes to the gospel would be for you to respond to somebody, not the way that your sin says you should, but in light of the cross. So that somebody asks me, why are you not responding to me the way everybody else does? And you can tell them, let me tell you about my Savior. He's also a picture of sacrificial service. Mark chapter 10 verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, mil for, for many. He's a picture of, humil of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul uses this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yours, which is yours in Christ. So he's talking to the church here, a church that was elevating themselves above others. And he says, no, you need to consider others more significant than yourselves. And, and the way you do that is look to the cross. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Will you love each other in the church that way? Man, imagine a family. Imagine a church that embraces the centrality of the cross and that says, we're going to treat one another in light of the cross. And I'm going to count others more significant because I see Christ laying down his life for me. I killed Jesus. I was like Barabbas and should have been on the cross. And Jesus died for me. He says, love and treat one another this way. And then he's also a picture of endurance. I love this. Hebrews 12 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Run with endurance and with joy. Jesus went to the cross and we know he prayed, God, if there's any other way, let it be done, but not your, your will, not my will, but your will be done. But he went to the cross with joy. As we read in Isaiah 53, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus, even though he knows the pain of the cross, embraces it because of you. So run with endurance looking to the cross. Jesus on the cross is an example for how we are to follow hard after him. Let me come back to the text. Verse 39, we see now this, the, the two criminals. And we see a conversation. We get to peer into a conversation here. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. None of the other synoptic gospels mention this. They both say the two criminals reviled Jesus. But the picture here is that it seems that both of them started out reviling him and yet at the end, Man, one of the criminals' heart was softened and eyes were opened to see and even confess that Jesus wasn't innocent and we were guilty. He acknowledges his sin. He says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Which poses this question. How can anyone be and live with God? I mean, this is the big question from the very beginning. God created man in Genesis 1. He dwelt with man in the garden. You have Genesis 3 and sin and fall. You have Adam blaming Eve and Eve blaming the serpent. And then they get kicked out of the garden. Man was with God in the garden. And now they are separated from God. You see, that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. There is no way that man can dwell with God because of our sinfulness. And so the rest of the Bible is the story of redemption and how God is going, the solution to the fall, the solution to your sin and to my sin so that I can actually enjoy and experience what I was created for in relationship with God forever. So you go to Genesis 22 and you've got God saying, hey, go sacrifice Abraham. Go sacrifice Isaac. And they're walking, Lord, but I'm supposed to ask my only son, my one and only son, I've got to go sacrifice. And Abraham says this, the Lord will provide a lamb. We continue on and we get to Exodus and, and the Israelites have been enslaved and are driven. And you've got the 10 plagues and Moses saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. And the 10th plague is the plague of the firstborn son. 
and the death angel. And God says, the death angel will pass over you if you'll go sacrifice an unblemished lamb and take the blood and rub it over the doorpost. And that's exactly what happens. And God saves his people out of slavery through the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. And then they come to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and they receive the law. And God gives them all kind of instructions about the tabernacle and about how God's presence and the Holy of Holies, God's presence would come, but yet there was a need for a sacrifice to deal with sin. And so God says, every year there's going to be a day of atonement. And you need a, a goat that's going to be the sin offering, and then you need Another goat that's going to be the scapegoat. And you're going to sacrifice one. And you're going to rub the blood of that one on the scapegoat and send it out into the wilderness as a picture of taking your sin away. Jesus is the innocent lamb provided by God who takes away the sin of the world. And through Jesus, God receives you if you place your faith in him. This is the message of the cross, and this is the climax of redemption and what God has been doing since the very beginning. So why did Jesus die? I've got to fly through this really quick. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven. Through his blood, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus died so that we could be justified. Jesus died so that we could be saved from judgment. Jesus died so that I would be redeemed from sin. I'm no, no longer a slave to sin because I have died with Christ. But ultimately, Christ died to bring us to God. Jesus died so that we might be reconciled. I love these few verses that I want us to look at right here as we wrap up. It says this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death. Thus, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Yes, I want to be in paradise. I want to go to heaven. But God is the goal of the gospel. If God is not in heaven, that is not heaven. So when we read this and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, what Jesus is acknowledging is the way that he can be with God is because his sin has been taken care of in the cross. So for you here today, and as you're examining the cross, the cross becomes the power of God for you when you look at it and you see the cross is the way that you get back to God. Are you far away from God today? You can be brought near immediately through faith, repentance, and trust in Christ. So we wrap up with verse 44. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light filled and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw 
what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances and the women had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Darkness fell as a symbol of judgment. And yet it was also literal. God is at work, and creation is giving evidence that God is doing something on the cross. The veil in the temple is torn as a picture that now there is access to the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, through the sacrifice of Christ. And Jesus dies, committing His Spirit in complete trust into the sovereign God. As we wrap up, we see all kind of reactions in the crucifixion. We see many who mocked him, who blasphemed him. We see one criminal who rejected him, another criminal who embraced him. We see a Roman centurion who acknowledged and believed in him. Where do you stand? Jesus didn't die as a guilty man, but as an innocent lamb, and he saves those who turn to him. Will you call to Jesus today? If you will, it will yield immediate results. Come to Jesus, I beg you. Embrace him. Confess your sin and say thank you. And follow him with your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. Would you reveal our own sin and wickedness? Would you make it clearer than it's ever been? Would you grant us grace to embrace Jesus, to turn from our sin, because we have been freed from the power of sin to follow you? And God, would you help us to follow you? Help us to love one another the way you loved us displayed in the cross. Help us to endure suffering the way you endured suffering. Help us to love our enemies. God, transform us by the cross, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.